And it wasn't until, I think it was 2004, that Kaiser Permanente invited me out to the West Coast to keynote like a vendor fair that they were doing to kind of socialize sustainability among all the people that work for them. And the person who introduced me was an architect in California who said that he had been following my work for a decade and that he was just completely enamored. And anytime he saw that there was a project of mine published, he was right there. And it's at that point that I said, wow, you really notice? Somebody notices this? And that actually empowered me past the concern about whether being an environmentalist was going to be bad for my reputation as a designer. It really powered me through that, and it helped me develop a voice. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Revision Path. My name is Maurice Cherry, and I'm the host of Revision Path, an award-winning weekly interview podcast that showcases the world's best black designers, developers, and digital creatives. If you're looking to get inspired, then tune in each week for in-depth conversations that explore the creative journey, including the processes, thoughts, and motivations behind these awesome creators shaping the future of art, design, and technology. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. And this is part two of my two-part conversation with Robin Gunther. Robin is a healthcare architect. She's a principal at Perkins & Will. She works at the intersection of healthcare architecture and sustainability policy. She's the senior advisor to Healthcare Without Harm, has co-coordinated the Green Guide for Healthcare, and has served on the LEAD for Healthcare Committee. LEAD is an acronym. It stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. It, by the way, is the most widely used green building rating system. Robin has received accolades, including being a 2014 TEDMED speaker. That's where we met. She was named the number one most influential designer in healthcare by Healthcare Design Magazine. And she was named one of the 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company. Let's get to the conversation where this time, Robin's going deeper into some of her own projects. Over the last few years, you had the opportunity to gain the perspective on the patient side by being a patient. And I'm wondering, you know, what you observed from a design perspective that you're like, gosh, I had never seen that before. This is how this is going to inform my design going forward. So one of the things I think is fundamentally different from the way we were trained to think about hospital design, I'm talking about acute care units, is that um, anytime we talk about, and this still happens today, anytime we talk about increased um, amenity space for patients or, or the ability for patients to maneuver, we often hit, the patients are too sick, they're never getting out of bed. Um, if they could walk around, they wouldn't be here. That's what we hear. But when I was a patient, they had me out of that bed in about 12 hours walking around the floor. And what I, what I immediately recognized is eight-foot hospital corridors are not designed for all the stuff. And then 30 to 36 patients, you know, some often with another person for stability, you know, and, and their IV pole walking around doing laps on these floors. 
And and that to me was a huge moment of just wait a minute. That's why it is really important to get the stuff into some back corridor system. It's really important to get because what you've all learned in medicine is sedentary behavior in a hospital. There's no good outcome for that. And so what you want is people up and around. Yeah. It, I have visions of, to your point, quarters that are not wide enough, equipment parked in those quarters because there's no place to park the equipment. Meanwhile, patients are supposed to walk up and down with an IV pole with a gown that doesn't really cover them up. It's so thin, they are freezing. And yeah, I mean, we have a lot of design opportunities in hospitals. Boy, is that true. And and I also think that hospitals, I do see hospitals rethinking their approach to public space and bringing more more retail and services on site that are aimed at staff almost more than patients. So I am seeing hospitals, you know, doing um, better, more choices for meal delivery, particularly for night shifts, more, um, more spatial choice, like more off what you'd call offstage space, meditation spaces, um, respite areas, outdoor spaces that really recognize that the conversations that you might want to have with your colleagues, you don't want to have in front of patients. And and so trying to create a kind of staff community zone in hospitals that's much more defined than it's been in the last generation of hospital buildings that promotes collaboration and interdisciplinary teams and all those things that you are trying to do in medicine to improve patient care. Speaking of interdisciplinary teams, um, what struck me in our conversation is not only do you have a hold on architecture, you know about uh, chemistry, biochemistry, physics, biology, and what, you know, for someone that's listening, a younger listener is like, I'm really interested in architecture. I'm really interested in healthcare design. You know, what topical areas um, are a part of your training and that you use now that you would have never predicted are important to your practice? Well, you know, who would have predicted that environmental sustainability training would be important. You know, that's what I focused on when I was in London. That's what I focused on in my master's program. I didn't focus on healthcare. I just was, it was the first energy crisis, like when Jimmy Carter came on with the sweater in the White House, right? We all remember that day, like turn down your thermostat, save oil, right? Um, and, And so, you know, I... When I moved back to New York from London in 1979, no one cared about environmentalism anymore. Like it was the beginning of the, you know, or soon after it was the Reagan years. That problem seemed to have gone away. OPEC got started. Everything, it's all under control. And and then I started doing healthcare, and healthcare didn't care about it. And so it was like another 10 years before I actually started to knit those worlds back together. And in a lot of ways, I think, in the early days of me talking about sustainability in healthcare, people in the industry would say to me, 
you know, you have a really good project design reputation. People really admire your work, but they think you're a little crazy about these building materials. And maybe you just want to not talk about that so much. And, and I just looked those people in the eye and said, they'll see. But this is the future. I firmly believe this is the future. And, and um, you know, so I did that. I went in kind of wholeheartedly and, in essence, sort of helped healthcare redefine its environmental approach. And I worked with great people doing that. Um, healthcare Without Harm, Practice Green Health, Healthy Building Network. Like, it's been like a whole universe of people really getting their arms around the environmental footprint of healthcare and then working to optimize it. You've been awarded many awards, designated many designations. What is one about which you're most proud? Well, I have to say the one that surprised me in a way the most was when Fast Company did the 100 Most Creative People in Business and put me on that list. I was just stunned. I went, what? At first, I thought it was like a hoax. Why would you pick me? And of course, they, you know, they said, you know, we follow people. We, you know, we have kind of a research file and every, we just add and add and add to it. And every year we pull it out and we, and, you know, you deserve this. I, that was the most stunning one to me. You've been doing this how many years? Well, I've been doing sustainability in healthcare probably 25 years. Has anything changed? Yes, I think it has. You know, when, when, um, when I did the first edition of my book in 2008, uh, it was really hard to find sustainable healthcare projects. The book is called Sustainable Healthcare Architecture. And trust me, we had to dig deep to find a representative group of projects, and many of them were in Europe and outside the U.S. When we updated that book in 2013, it was this, I mean, it was noticeably different. And it was interesting that when the second edition of the book came out, we got a lot of feedback that the projects were beautiful. And that was something that kind of caught us by surprise that it is absolutely true that when you aggregate a book of sustainable healthcare projects, the environments are unlike anything that you described. And so it's a way in which sustainability and biophilia, which is a key element of sustainability, connecting people to nature, has, is fundamentally shifting the typology of hospitals. I think there's more glass. I think there's more attention to outdoor space. I think there's just more interest in capturing views for people and um, making the buildings better places to be. Audience members are curious. Uh, wow, Robin's been an amazing guest for Risa. What are some of her projects? Where can they look to see your work? So... Um, the most recent hospital that I 
finished and worked on for a decade, because that's how long it takes to do a big hospital, is the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital on Stanford's campus in Palo Alto. And, and it was an addition, 500,000 square foot addition to a 250,000 square foot building, but it's the addition. And, um, and it's a LEED Platinum building, so it achieved the highest level of LEED certification. It has a number of really innovative design features in it, but what I th- where I think it really excels is in this biophilic and connection to nature. And, um, you know, I had a former employee whose child was hospitalized there and, and ultimately passed away, but still she reached out to me and said, I learned that you designed that hospital and and I want you to understand how much it meant to us that we felt like it was easier to breathe the air because we knew it was really highly filtered. Um, our daughter loved going out, uh, going to the outside gardens and out onto the terrace. She really connected with the animals that you have in the place. Um, you know, it couldn't have been a better experience. And in fact, when she was discharged from Packard, they sent her to a rehab facility, and she immediately wrote the CEO a letter in the rehab facility and said, these are all the things I think you have to do here to make this better for me. And and so, you know, that's why I do this work is because I do think it changes people's lives to be in these buildings. We recently had a large healthcare system in the U.S. that was touring hospitals on the West Coast, and they, and we suggested that they see Packard, and they said, oh, it's a children's hospital. It's not really relevant. We don't think so. And my interior design person really insisted, no, that's what you want to experience about the building has nothing really to do with the fact that it's for kids. It's really the experience of being in this hospital. And um, so they agreed to come They showed up on their way to SFO. They were exhausted. They'd already toured like five things. They got off the bus and the woman said, oh, my God, it was really hard. We almost didn't come. We were thinking of calling you because we're so tired. They walked around the building for 35 minutes. They were energized. They were they were like, according to my interior designer, they were completely transformed. And they said, Thank you, thank you, thank you. We didn't think architecture could make this kind of difference. Mic mic drop, enough said. You talked about walking corridors in space, and I did an episode with one of your colleagues, Ian Sinet, on medical malls. What is your thought on this concept of the transformation of former retail spaces into one-stop shopping, I'll call it, uh, medical spaces, medical malls? I think it's a great idea, actually. And, you know, what I'd like to see is more developers looking at putting senior housing or... um, maybe not assisted living, but senior housing, independent living, uh, you know, tied into those vertically coming out of them. Because, you, you know, I certainly think that we as a society have to keep people living independently longer. And we need to make sure our housing 
is equipped for people like you, medical providers, to be able to monitor and understand what's going on with someone's health, um, but not have to bring them long distances for treatment. And and so um, I got that idea because the Scandinavians are doing that and trying to kind of because then it's easier for people to go down if there's like a little supermarket down there or a store and then they can go to their doctor appointment, et cetera, and they can self-navigate. So I, I think it's great. I'd love to see old mall properties reinvented. It's amazing how many of them are on land that has great views or all this stuff that you never experienced when you were in the mall because it was a completely sealed environment right i mean you might notice it when you went to your car at the end oh look at that fabulous sunset um i just think about like the cost and the access you know parking free parking abundant parking you don't have to go all the way to downtown philadelphia downtown new york city downtown boston navigate traffic take a whole day off work all these things that are actually quite difficult and not at all patient or caretaker centric I think that's absolutely true. And of course, it's not carbon efficient. So I think as hospitals have begun to measure their carbon emissions, they're looking at things like transportation and they're looking at both their employee transportation as well as their patient transportation by mapping the patient's home address to their points of care. And they're beginning to take that into account when they cite services um, because it, it just perpetuates this reliance on a high-carbon environment. The audience's appetite is wet. We, we want to hear about another one of your projects. Okay. Well, you know, the first one, the one that was really a very important one to me was that in 2001, 2002, when I was really just beginning, in a way, this materials journey, but I had all this sustainability training, I I was approached by Patrick Dollard at the Center for Discovery, which is a residential facility for severely developmentally disabled children, medically fragile children, and adults. And it's it's a 360-acre campus in Sullivan County, New York, they're the largest employer in Sullivan County, and they um, it's a group home model. So there are never there's never housing in more than, let's say, groups of 10 to 12. They came to me to do a clinic building. And initially, um, you know, I went to see the place thinking that those can be some of the worst institutional environments that any of us have seen. Um, and and I was a little worried about that. And Patrick knew I was worried about that. He said, no, you have to come and see what we're doing, and then you'll understand why you're the right person and why we should team up. So as a result of seeing them in action, I said, this would be great. Like, I'll do the clinic building so that you can medically treat your kids. It was going to be staffed by doctors who moved between like Columbia Prez and up there, right? So it was going to be shift, you know, session-based. And um, and so we did, actually, the first LEED-certified healthcare facility in New York State. 
And, you know, the funniest thing that happened is the Department of Health sent us a letter when they were reviewing the drawings and they said, why approach sustainability besides saving energy? Question mark. And I thought, isn't that a good enough reason? Like, um, but, you know, we answered the question and they went along with it. And and so we built this lead silver building and um, and got through that milestone. But what to me was the most remarkable part of that is how it changed them as an organization. And, and you know, I would say that when I first started traveling up there, you would see SUVs as a matter of course in their staff parking lots and all that. I'd say within five years of that building opening, that had switched to hybrids and they were offering employees little rebates if they bought hybrid cars. They were, um, they had an organic community supported agriculture farm across the street from this clinic on their campus because they were trying to grow food for their residents. They really then used the, that farm, they brought the farm onto the site around the clinic planted orchards, did all this, you know, food growing. Um, and and they, div- they devised a new tagline, food is medicine. And they now view themselves as a completely sustainable organization. And they're going further and further and, f- and just doing gangbuster work um, around you know, organic farming and jobs for, you know, developmentally disabled adults farming. And um, it's just, it's really great to see. Robin, I think it's safe to say that you are ahead of your time. What has it been like to be a leader in this field? So when I started, there were no women. Um, In my graduating class of architecture school, there were two women out of 50. Um, architecture school is predominantly female now because it follows the pattern of the professions that males tend to gravitate out of professions that are lower paying toward higher paying and women have backfilled. And, um, and architecture is not considered a highly paid profession. So um, it's not surprising to see that, but it's been a relief the the difficulty has been again is the profession someplace that women want to work and i think i think it's been tough there's been a culture in architecture of long hours self-sacrifice um that hasn't supported work-life balance and so you know when i started my firm i started a firm with a male partner who was a friend of mine. He wasn't my life partner. He was a friend of mine. And and we were unusual in being male, female, not married to each other because traditionally the only way for women to manage that was to marry an architect and then start a firm together where they could control the work-life balance. So that was the generation before me. And you saw much fewer, a a big drop-off 
between that model and the women practicing in large firms doing big work like like Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. So, um, you know, I would say that I didn't feel a glass ceiling the 17 years I had my own practice because I had my own practice. I guess, you know, and I had a male partner for 10 of those years. So I guess if people didn't want to work with a woman, they could always say they're working with him. But, but the fact is, healthcare has always been a good place for female architects because healthcare is a little has has not been as male dominated in the same period of time that I'm talking about. So, um, but but what surprised me about selling my firm in 2007 to Perkins and Will is that I entered an environment where there were actually a lot of female principals. And it had never occurred to me that I would have a whole peer group of women in my career. And so it's been really fabulous to have such a strong and supportive peer peer group in this firm, in my practice, um, and completely unexpected. Your voice. Uh, when did you realize you had your voice? When did you start using your voice? Did they happen at the same time, or was it... No, you know, I think I, I was really heads down doing work, designing projects from 1991 till 2004. I, a lot of my work was published in interior design magazines, medical trade publications, etc. Almost every project we did got recognized, but I never saw that. I was just working. And it wasn't until, I think it was 2004, that Kaiser Permanente invited me out to the West Coast to keynote like a vendor fair that they were doing um, to kind of socialize sustainability among all the people that work for them. And the person who introduced me was an architect in California who said that he had been following my work for a decade and that you know, he was just completely enamored. And any time he saw that there was a project of mine published, he was right there. And and it's at that point that I said, wow, you really notice? Somebody notices this? And that actually empowered me past the concern about whether being an environmentalist was going to be bad for my reputation as a designer um, it really powered me through that, and it helped me develop a voice. Um, I think, you know, you don't know, but I think by 2004, 2005, I just got so frustrated with the real slow pace of change in architecture, in healthcare architecture around these topics of quality, deinstitutionalizing the space, and sustainability, that I just decided, you got to speak your mind about this and take no prisoners about it. Like, if people don't agree, they don't agree, but um, you have to get out there and do it. So that's what I've been doing. The Risa Wrap-Up. Thank you again to Robin for making time and sitting with me in conversation. I loved every minute of it. Audience, 
Um, if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to part one. And thanks for listening to part two. Robin is ahead of her time. She is a visible voice in healthcare design. She was talking about sustainability before it was trendy. She knew that buildings and building materials were important for health, health of patients, health for healthcare workers working in these built environment systems. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening and as always, to be continued.